A Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Hello, is anybody out there? This is this is your humble host, John, and uh, thank you for joining us for another episode. Uh, you might remember a couple of weeks ago we were we had Sam uh, S on uh, the podcast, and she was talking about uh, the issues surrounding educators in recovery. And during that episode, I had uh, asked if there were any other professions, doctors, lawyers, whoever might want to um, talk about the issues they face in recovery to please send us an email. And fortunately um, we did get a response from our guest today who is rich S he is a physician from Portland, Oregon. And um, I'll just read you a little bit about what he wrote in his email is kind of a way to start this off. Uh, He wrote the stigma of addiction in the medical profession is real and it is strong and persistent. As you know, mental health and addiction issues are higher in the professions, in the health professions than in the general population. Despite this, we struggle asking for help. There are many reasons. I believe that many of us have codependent tendencies. We want to be the healers, not someone needing healing. As for me, I put myself in a position financially with my family, professionally, where I felt I didn't have any choices. My one choice was alcohol to escape. With regards to the current COVID situation, I worry for my fellow professionals. We are painted in the media and popular culture as superheroes. That's a lot to live up to in a time when many of us are suffering from endless work and no time to grieve or give ourselves self-care. I fear that addiction and mental health issues will soar as the COVID crisis continues. Well, Welcome to AA Beyond Belief, Rich. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to have you. And um, I'd like for you to meet or speak with uh, Angela. Uh, she is uh, my co-host. And as you know, <laughs> from uh, Boise. Yes. Hi, Angela. Hi. So glad you're here. I, I loved your email. It was it was very touching. Um, and I appreciate the follow-up you sent um, and the article that you shared with us. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, that that was an excellent article. Um, In fact, I'll post a link to that um, with the podcast description so people can read it. But it was an article written by um, uh, Dr. Lauren Rissman, and she described uh, an evening uh, when she, I guess, was walking home from work. And um, if if I got this right, she was walking across a bridge. And and as she was at that bridge, it occurred to her why so many physicians might commit suicide. And she described various um, aspects of her profession. And it was really a very well-written article and very moving. So, Rich, why don't we begin, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your history um, with substance abuse as a physician, and whatever, wherever you might want the conversation to go. We'll just let you begin. Sure. Sure. Thanks. Um, I'll just start, I guess, with the traditional AA story um, uh, by way of introduction. Uh, I grew up in New York, uh, relatively humble beginnings and um, uh, had loving parents, a good family. No, uh, they were not 
alcoholics or had any trouble with substances, um, social drinkers at most. Um, and, um, you know, we, we had a pretty happy family. I, I think I was one of the last generations in New York city who grew up with, you know, grandparents, a few blocks this way, aunts and uncles, everyone kind of in the same neighborhood, almost walking distance. And that was a nice, uh, upbringing, um, in my earlier years, uh, Moving on to kind of, my father ended up going to medical school. My mother was a teacher. Um, and uh, this was back in the mid seventies. Uh, you know, I was young, young kid. And uh, my mother got into uh, spirituality. And one thing my mother and I share is we don't do anything halfway. Um, when I was a kid, when I thought about, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, and I was a you know pretty observant Catholic, as was my family. Um, I not only had to be a good Catholic, I wanted to be a priest, and I wanted to be a priest in, until I was sixteen. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't want to be a pilot; I had to be an astronaut, and I couldn't join the army; I had to be a marine. You know, kind of. Uh, so. <laughs> extremes were always kind of part of my story, even at a young age. And my mother shares that with me. So when she got into the seventies kind of alternative culture, uh, Eastern mysticism, new age kind of stuff, she went all in and she became an interfaith minister. And basically in my teenage years, um, our house became a commune. Um, uh, I came, I would come home and never knew who was going to be there. I would find people basically in my room, in my bed sometimes. Um, and uh, by this point, my father was a, a doctor, still pretty conservative, you know, not, he gave it a try, but he just couldn't get into it. My mother was totally into it, and you know it was clear to my sister and me that you know things were starting to fall apart. Um, and uh, they ended up. I went to college. I ended up getting divorced. They ended up getting divorced. A uh, lot of a uh, lot of anger on my part. You know, in re all in retrospect, with years of therapy, have I uncovered all this? Not apparent to me at the time. And in college. I was a drinker um, in the 80s, you know, drinking culture, movies and such. Um, the college drinking culture was, you know, glorified. And I dove into that and uh, I surrounded myself with my college buddies who drank and we all drank. And I probably was, you know, at the far end of the spectrum. And I remember in college, um, you know, towards the end, that was scaring me. Uh, my grades didn't suffer. I didn't get thrown out. But, um, uh, you know, it was scaring me how much I drank. And um, I got out of college, kind of worked some jobs, um, and I stopped drinking. Stopped drinking entirely for uh, a number of years. Um, and uh, then slowly kind of got back into it. Um, but I was, you know, in the big book, um, 
terms, I was able to drink like a gentleman and, uh, you know, had a little wine on the weekends, uh, you know, uh, nothing, nothing foreboding, no, no cravings or anything. Um, so I finished medical school, did my training, uh, did fellowship, all drinking like a gentleman. And, uh, I ended up taking an academic position and um, I think was very idealistic about what I hope to accomplish. And um, academics was for me a very rough place. Uh, it was a rough uh, career path to establish myself and establish myself in a way that I wanted to go. And um, and still support my family. Academics doesn't, you know, pay very well relative to, you know, other private practice and such. Um, and I ended up um, uh, after about eight years of doing that, I ended up having pretty bad depression, um, and uh, saw. Um, uh, sought uh, counseling, actually ended up in a place for physicians in your great in the great state of Kansas um, mm -hmm. and um, got my depression treat got my depression treated, was seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, everything seemed to be going well, but things at work just were not I was not gelling with the culture. Um, it was part of it. I ended up um, uh, I ended up losing that job in a very inglorious way. Basically, when I was out there being treated for depression, my counselor told me that my employer, the university, had decided to um, let me go. Uh, so they didn't even tell me. My my counselor told me uh, mm -hmm. on on this on the second day I was there. Um, and uh, that was devastating. And uh, uh, so finished that, you know, was still going to therapy, drinking, not really an issue at that point. Ended up uh, taking a job in, uh, uh, in a Western state and living in Vermont. So I was commuting across the, I was commuting across the country um, uh, for 10, 11 days a month, I would live there, work continuously for 10 days, go home, and that's the way it was. And boy, um, I mean, I was, I recognize it now, I was the poster boy for uh, risk factors for developing an addiction. Uh, I was isolated, and not only isolated when I was working, but isolated at home because I no longer felt part of my community. Um, you know, I had been very active in the community and when I lost my university job, um, uh, you know, kind of that act, a lot of those activities fell away and I was isolated there. I was working all the time. They ended up making me director and it was nonstop stress. And uh, I can remember after all those years of drinking like a gentleman, I can remember just being home and just being unbelievably stressed and 
just pouring myself a scotch and boom, you know, a lot of your guests have talked about that. Oh my gosh. You know, that, that warmth and that, um, uh, relief. And then from there, it was, it was a cliff. Um, it was, you know, three, three and a half, four years of just steady nosedive, um, into, you know, daily drinking and, um, uh, uh, hiding my drinking and having my family confront me and just, um, uh, and, and denials and lying and all, all of those things. And I was never a blackout drinker. Um, I was a, what I refer to in meetings, I was, I was a cruise altitude drinker, wake up, take the edge off and keep the edge off for the rest of the day, go to sleep, you know, maybe have trouble sleeping, have a little bit more at night to help sleep, you know, and, uh, and there it was. And that's the way I lived for those few years. And finally, um, uh, I was at work, uh, someone smelled alcohol, the, uh, they called the chief of staff. He came down, um, escorted me to, um, uh, uh, employee health. I blew a breathalyzer and, uh, had blood drawn and was relieved of my duties, uh, right, rightly so. And, um, uh, from there, uh, I ended up in uh, rehab, um, and a very hardcore 12 step, um, rehab, which, you know, I didn't know anything about. I mean, I had explored AA, uh, online and I never got past the opening page because it was God, God, God. And I had long since, you know, through my teenage years with my mother, I had explored Buddhism and obviously raised a Catholic and all of that. And uh, I decided I really wasn't anything. Um, but this was, I saw that page on AA and I went, that's, that's not for me. And I had this, I think this view of AA at the time that it was a bunch of old guys in gray flannel suits and fedoras smoking in a basement <laughs> somewhere. And, um, I wasn't one of those guys, you know? And, uh, so I went to this rehab and they, I remember walking in the door and they said, and as part of this is you get your, we'll give you a big book. And I, you know, kind of went a big book of what? Um, and, um, so I went through that very, very hardcore, um, very traditional. Um, it, it, it helped. I did have the, I did have another kind of great experience almost on my first day there where I wasn't drinking. I hadn't been drinking for about a month and I had been seeing a psychiatrist all this time, obviously not having told them that I was drinking. Um, that drinking was a problem and um like in this one day like everything she told me for the last five years made complete sense like 
I heard it, but I never internalized it. And everything she told me just made complete sense. And from then on, really the compulsion, you know, again, in the language was, was lifted. And, um, uh, and, uh, I got home and, uh, I got back to Vermont and, uh, I remember my first meeting. Um, so I'll set the stage a little bit. December 20, December 23rd, I got home from rehab. My whole family, extended family was in my house to celebrate Christmas. So I roll into rehab to, you know, 20 people in my house. The next day, Christmas Eve is my first AA meeting. I didn't know where it was. I didn't know how to find it. I walk in, you know, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And um, I walk in and there's a woman I knew because from Little League from years before. And she walked in and she just looked at me and threw her arms around me and said, I'm so happy you're here. Um, and that just relieved everything. And from then on, you know, it's, uh, I, I felt more comfortable. I got a sponsor, um, uh, and, uh, he was, he's, uh, he's an agnostic and, uh, started an agnostic meeting. And then, you know, very early on in my recovery, I went into the agnostic issues and, um, or agnostic A program. And, it's really been wonderful. So that's, that's kind of my story. Well, cool. Thank you. And so you you know, you, um, you were on your hand was forced then basically, uh, to get help. It wasn't like, uh, I don't know. Do you feel like that there were issues surrounding your profession that was preventing you from seeking help? Um, or was it just in, like in my case, it was simply denial. I, you know, I just wouldn't admit I had a problem. Oh yeah. I mean, denial, the denial was, it was unbelievably thick. Um, and, uh, and that was part of it, but the professional consequences were, you know, potentially, um, you know, dire. Um, and, uh, I, you know, on every license application, you have to answer questions about, drug and alcohol use and mental health, not about other things, not about other physical problems you may have um, or medical problems you may have, just those things. And, um, you know, you, you hear stories, I hear stories all the time from my fellow physicians who have asked their colleagues, you know, about getting help and they're actively discouraged not to because it could have a negative impact on their career. Uh, oh, yeah, I've talked to nurses before who have um, had um, substance abuse issues and have had to go to treatment, forced by their employer to get treatment. And it was a very stringent um, follow-up program that they had to go through for years to keep their, their license to practice nursing. It was very, very strict. Did, did you have to do anything like that? Oh, I'm, yes, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. Um, mm. And uh, I am, I am, uh, I get tested randomly for not only alcohol, which is uh, the only thing I ever uh, was my substance of choice. But for anything else, um, I have mandatory counseling. Um, 
mandatory psychiatric visits. Uh, uh, I have a monitor. I have a workplace monitor who um, is a is a fellow physician who is familiar with the work I do in my specialty and has to fill out monthly fitness reports on me. Um, so yeah, it is, and that, that is for at uh, for most for most people, it's at least five years of that. Um, yeah, that's a lot tougher than what uh, most people would have to deal with, um, you know, when they're in recovery. But when you when you were going through that, and as you go through that, your colleagues, I suppose, are aware of what you're doing, and are they supportive? Um, it is. Um, well, my, uh, some are and some aren't. And um, like everyone at work, uh, everyone who I work with nurses and everybody knows I don't drink. But no one has ever asked me why. Um, it's not a, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, we're, we're as, you know, alcoholics, part of the disease is we become untrue to ourselves, I think. And, uh, you know, I've always been the nature boy, granola, vegetarian guy. And uh, the fact that I don't drink just kind of fits in with my persona. You know, it, it, it's, it's, and it, with who I am. And um, so not drinking is not the aberration. Drinking was the aberration, was the inconsistency. So, um, so some people know, some people don't, and that's actually something that I have uh, struggled with. I would like to come out at some point um, and uh, and talk about it in a much more open way um, with my colleagues and with the medical system that I work, work in and, and hopefully help, you know, encourage other people who are struggling to get help. Um, but, um, and I just don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredible that, you know, the, the job I have now, now the, 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 the doc who hired me, he basically hired me right out of rehab. And he gave me a chance and um, uh, he just retired and I took his position as director and I, at his party, I pulled him aside and I said, you know, I would just want to thank you for everything you've done for me, taking a chance on me and, uh, um, you know, letting, you know, helping in my recovery. And he just looked at me and he got teary eyed and he said, it's just the best decision I ever made. Um and I think in our profession, there are just not that there are not enough people like that out there um, who are willing to see, you know, 20 percent of doctors uh, in a recent survey, 20 percent in the past year uh, on a questionnaire flag positive for uh, alcohol abuse or alcohol use disorder. So 20 percent. It's a big problem. And it's one that's not being it's not being addressed. Johnny had a question in our chat room. He wanted to know, is there a two strikes in your out policy for doctors? You're monitored for five years. And if you're not, and if you test positive for anything in five years, then you're monitored for life. 
other states, uh, other states are stricter. Some are less strict. It just depends on, it's a very much a state by state basis. And by the way, the phones are open for those of you who want to call in. Um, if you are a healthcare professional and you'd like to share uh, your story, uh, what you what you are going through as a, a healthcare professional in recovery, or if you have a question for Rich, please do call in. The number is 844-899-8278. So Rich, do you go to um, meetings, um, AA meetings specifically for physicians in recovery? Yes. Yeah, there are meetings. Uh, there is an organization called IDAA, uh, International Doctors in AA, uh, and they have, they're called Caduceus meetings, um, and they are specifically for medical professionals. Uh, and they, you know, most states, uh, the state I live in, in Oregon, um, there are, I think, three around the state. Uh, so they're not very common, but they, they are, they are around. Um, but IDAA is a great a resource for, for, for health professions in, in recovery. You know, I was reading as I was getting ready for this, that, um, uh, a problem that's even worse than alcoholism among physicians and is at a higher rate than among the general population, healthcare workers in general, is um, drug addiction, opioid addiction. And uh, the what I read is that um, there are a number of reasons for that. And one of those is just the accessibility to drugs. Um, I wonder if you've noticed that. Yeah, and yeah, that that is that is true. It's accessibility um, is is one issue. And um, it also kind of depends on your specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anesthesiologists, for example, have access to and and um, uh, have a higher tendency to uh, uh, to use opioids. Uh, ER docs uh, tend to favor cocaine, marijuana, um, but the the number one choice across all specialties is um, is alcohol. Um, uh, so there there are some specialty variations, but, um, alcohol and opiates are, uh, far and away the, the, and, and, um, anxiety medicines, benzodiazepines are, uh, make up the majority of, um, of, of, uh, addictions in, in, in physicians. And you know, a a fun historical fact, um, I did not know this until I was getting ready to speak with you, Rich, but do you know that ether, was first used in surgery as an anesthetic in 1842 by a surgeon who he was familiar with it from his um, recreational use of it. And they called it ether frolics. It was Crawford Williamson. Isn't that interesting that already back in 1842, you had a physician who was, I don't know if he had a problem with it or not, but he was certainly using it recreationally. And he said, you know what, this might work. um, This might help me take that tumor out of my patient's neck. (laughs) <laughs> yeah what, what's there's what, actually an interesting thing actually i just read that said that um there are there's some that um anesthesiologists get um exposed to you know just the gases that they 
that they use to anesthetize patients, and it's thought that exposure or current exposure to that may sort of trigger um, uh, 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 or facilitate opiate addiction. So it's a theory. I don't know if it's been proven, but um, it's 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 very it's it's interesting to me. Um, yeah, I would imagine the stress of you know pretty much any of the healthcare professions um, contributes a lot to it as well. I mean, it, there's so much at stake that uh, that I could easily see. I mean, there wasn't much at stake when I was you know using <laughs> or anything, and I still wanted to escape reality. But I imagine that you know uh, when there is a lot at stake, that that uh, that option is uh, probably, you know, given higher priority um, for a lot of people uh, to, to escape yeah. things. Um, do you know if, um, if you know, I, well, we have one person who asked how the pandemic um, affected alcohol addiction rates of healthcare workers. And you had mentioned in your email that you were really concerned about um, your colleagues and, and people in the healthcare field. Um, what are your thoughts on that right now? You know, are you seeing it in your own area or is it, you know, just in general? Uh, I, I, I think, I think it's too early to tell, um, you know, for, for, for us, um, you know, for us, it's just, uh, it's healthcare workers. I mean, it's just starting, um, you know, we're over the peak now, now we're entering the chronic phase and, uh, then there's going to be, you know, a lot of people think there's going to be another peak, you know, the, the, the horizon for us on this is not yet visible. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is, uh, that is certainly a stress. Um, and I think, uh, like I alluded to in my email, this, you know, Hey, I'm, we're as egotistic as everyone else. And we mm -hmm. love the praise and, you know, people banging pots and, and thanking us. Um, you know, when I come home in scrubs and, you know, whatever, um, I like that, but like I said, that is a lot to live up to. Um, and uh, I think for many of us, medicine has changed in a way that is going to be difficult um, for a lot of people to readjust and, um, you know, and to get to Angela's uh, earlier point of yeah, stress is one thing, um, but it's also the personalities that medicine attracts. Yeah. We are perfectionist. We are perfectionistic. Um, and not only are we perfectionistic, we're perfectionistic in a profession that demands perfection. Mm -hmm. um, no one wants to see their doctor and be told before they go in the room, ah, he didn't sleep well last night. He's not having a bad day. Uh, he's, yeah. he's really not on his, he's really not on his game today. Right. You know, that is not, that's not the way it works. And so, um, you know, so we're perfectionistic, we're compulsive, uh, um, uh, we're, um, you know, all of, all of which are attributes that are uh, in one way uh, very helpful in the profession, but in another way, very self-defeating because perfection is an illusion. 
Um, you know, having been here doing this many years, you can you can go through and and re-examine any patient's chart and find you know little tiny you know errors and, and um, that have no consequence. But if you're a perfectionist, then that's a problem. And so not only is it the pressure we put on ourselves, kind of the personality that goes into the field, but it's the expectations uh, that is put on us from, from without, from society. And now that it's that expectation is with the pandemic is being even elevated further. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where my concern comes in for, for my colleagues. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, nurses, especially, you know, nurses working four or five, six shifts, you know, 14 mm-hmm. hour shifts, go home, pass out, you know, go home, fall asleep, come in and do it all again. Um, uh, where's their time to decompress? Um, you know, likewise, other, other people in the field. Uh, yeah. Do they, do they talk about it within, you know, your, um, your division or, um, or your supervisors or anything like, you know, uh, trauma resources or employee health is, you know, is there anything in there yet? There's been, I have seen um, a big outreach of promotion of, you know, EAP and, um, you know, uh, uh, clinician resources and, and, and uh, all of that is, all of that is available. I mean, the fact is, is that it's always available. It's the problem of healthcare workers in general to not ask for help. Hey, Rich, we have a caller. We can take this call. See who this is. Hello. Hi, John. This is Dale. Hey, Dale. Hi. I was just wondering if there's uh, some criteria, some set criteria that where a doctor might lose his license because of addiction Mm. and how often this happens. Um, Oh yeah. There are, there are definite, there are definite criteria. Um, you know, most of that is uh, up to the state, you know, uh, monitoring boards. And like I said, some of them are very strict and some aren't. But if you are in violation of your your monitoring or your your, your monitoring agreement, your name is published and. The plan is, you know, your your remediation plan is published, and then uh, if if the board decides that it's appropriate for you to lose your license, that is also uh, that is also published. So it's all public record. How often it happens, it you know, I get my newsletter from the medical board, you know, every month, and there's always a list of people who. Rich, I've seen that. I've seen that. I was uh, actually researching a doctor um, who gave a talk on YouTube and she had that happen to her where she um, had a problem with addiction, went to treatment, whatever happened, but it was made public. And then they have this website where people can go to check out their physicians, right? And she came up as one of the people that had this problem or whatever. So it's like that is, I I mean, I can understand why you'd want to have that, but that, that is certainly stigmatizing. 
Exactly. Um, you know, the, the, the idea is that you are, you get help, you get, you know, monitored, uh, you know, with your recovery program, you know, very closely uh, and you stay in compliance. And if you do that, you know, then your name is generally not made public, but if you're in violation, then it can be made public. You know, I mean, that can be an extremely shameful, obviously a shameful experience. And, um, a big deterrent. One might not voluntarily want to go seek help if they're if they realize they have to go through this five year program and constant monitoring. And if they fail, it's publicly acknowledged. It's a, I can see how that could, uh, you know, be a big be an deterrent. obstacle. Absolutely, yeah. Dale wrote a book. Um, it was like um, it's the um, it's like a secular version of the big book. And Dale, I was thinking as I was talking to Rich about that story of Doctor Bob when he went to operate on somebody and they had to give him a bottle to keep his hands steady. How would you like to be that patient? (laughs) Yeah. I think Dr. Bob needed some monitoring. (laughs) Well, thank you for calling Dale. It was nice to talk to you. How you doing over there anyway? I'm doing fine, John. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for calling. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. The phones are open, so please do feel free to call in. The number as um, is up there. It's 844-899-8278. So, you know, I was going to say something uh, when you were talking about how the impact of COVID, and I was thinking about that as I uh, before our podcast, that I also think is going to be after this is over, because right now you're just kind of you're dealing with what's in front of you, but there will be a, like a post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, like returning from a war, I think is what will, will happen. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think that there are more, there's more awareness um, for healthcare workers regarding healthcare and, and trauma, but I don't know that necessarily all the resources are there. I have a, a friend who, um, who works in uh, ICU, um, and that they were going to seek, um, seek some trauma resources, um, for, you know, just that job, (laughs) you know, is very traumatic sometimes. Um, and that, uh, in this area, there really weren't any, which was surprising because we've had, um, several, uh, first responders, uh, commit suicide in the last couple of years. And so there was a big community thing of, we need to have, um, you know, resources available for first responders. Um, but when this person called to get those, they really didn't have any like licensed counselors that, that specialized in healthcare and trauma and, and stuff. And so the person had to seek, seek things outside of uh, what was provided within their employee system. Um, but, you know, I think that I, I have heard that people are at least doing that now, um, trying to seek out trauma. And, and when they do that, um, I don't think they have to admit that they have any sort of, you know, addiction problems. And, um, and so it's not looked at as, uh, as badly on. Um, so a way for them to get help without having to get the attached um, uh, diagnosis or. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, um, I think it's a, uh, it, it's something that I think, patients as well as healthcare people have to advocate for um and uh because it it's not a big stretch to think of how stressful all of this is on on healthcare workers and um 
it's it it can be rather system dependent. Uh, when I was at the university, there really wasn't anything like that, like your friend is experiencing. There really there really wasn't a great system mm-hmm. where I am now. After a stressful event, we have an immediate debriefing and then a debriefing a week later with a mediator, and um, everyone comes and it's you know it is unbelievably helpful um but er i think all systems need to definitely have that mechanism in place for um uh to provide support and we as healthcare workers we have to get out of our own way you know ask for help um and so it's a two-way street you know this you know the the systems have to make it available and then we as our as professionals have to recognize it and recognize the problems and access it mm. and um i think though that there's a big issue of trust mm. that is this going to stay confidential is you know uh uh am i going to be able to keep these these issues private um you know that's uh you know that's a big concern that's a big concern definitely you know um another interesting fact though is that um those doctors physicians um medical workers i guess in large when they do seek treatment the success rate is pretty high um i was reading on the internet there was a, a study that reported like 81% of the of some participants in a treatment program um, were still sober after five years after treatment. That's, that's a pretty high percentage of people remaining sober. And uh, I think that that percentage of um, is higher than the normal population. I think I found that kind of interesting. That's amazing. And maybe it's because of just the knowledge that you have. Yeah, it's, it's the knowledge and it's, it's the knowledge. And I think it is the support and, and um, I think that, you know the, the the PHP and it's an in its uh, ideal role provides some accountability and uh, I have said uh, I have said in many meetings that I completely respect people who got sober on their own you know just I can't do this anymore I'm going to meetings and um, and did it I I have to I have to answer to a lot. And um, I have a lot of people uh, and a lot of systems keeping me on, you know, the straight and narrow, at least externally. Um, but the people, you know, I think you and Angela, you've done it on your own. You know, I, I, I completely respect that. Um, that's not an easy road either. Do you happen to know somebody from Vermont by the name of Peter T.? Uh, I wasn't going to drop his name because <laughs> he just posted a really cool story. He said, he said that, um, let's say he says he is really cool. He says he can't help but connect the dots. He said, John and Ben's podcast inspired him to become out as an atheist or diagnostic in recovery. And then he attended the convention in Austin where he met me and Ben and he, and he met Dale and that inspired him to start the meeting in Vermont, which is how he met you. <laughs> Yeah. And then you heard him on, you heard him call in on our podcast and you connected back with him. I did. And, um, uh, I, uh, I was at one of my meetings. I did the, I did the 90 and 90. Well, actually to come clean, you know, because I'm a perfectionist, 
Uh, I actually did 89 and 90 um, <laughs> because on the 90th day, I had to fly out here for a job for my job interview. So I couldn't make a meeting. Um, but um, he made an announcement at one of my meetings. I was probably out of rehab about a month, not even that he was starting an agnostic meeting. And I didn't get to the first one, but I believe I got to the second one. And yeah, it was that was that was home. Uh, that was home. And uh, he was actually not to tell tales out of my out of school, but he was my first sponsor. Oh, cool. Um, Very cool. And uh, he 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 was incredibly he was incredibly good at talking me off the ledge. Um, when I would go to a traditional meeting and get outraged about something that was said, um, he was good at, you know, you don't have to think that way. You know, you don't, that's not the way everyone thinks. And uh, yeah, he was, a, he was an incredible resource. Another little known fact about Peter, he has an app. I think it was called, uh, what is it? AA Bingo, I think, or something like that. And it was like, um, Oh, I, if it's still online, I'll have to put the link out there. It's really kind of funny, but it's like you play this game so that anytime you hear like a certain phrase in AA, you get it or what it, it's like a bingo game. It's kind of funny. I have to, I can't. Sober I bingo. <laughs> Sober yes, bingo. That's what it is. Yeah. A friend of ours, Tracy, is asking about if medical doctors um, who are like in that program, um, I'm sure it varies by state, but uh, do you know if any of them are allowed to seek out and use uh, medically assisted treatment? You know, uh, like. Uh, yes. 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 Okay. <laughs> Thanks yeah, for saying they, yes they, before um, I had to sit, try to pronounce the words. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Uh, I have trouble with some of those too. Um, but um, actually, when I was in when I was in uh, inpatient, um, uh, the uh, it was it was offered to me that uh, that I could take uh, Suboxone. Yeah. And I, I declined it. Uh, I didn't feel like I needed it at that point. But yeah, medication-assisted treatment is is accepted. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm one of those all of all of the above uh, to try to help people because you know it's not a one size fits all um, with addiction. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. And it it makes sense that they would. Uh, that's that was a really good question though because it makes you wonder. You know, uh, but but they the, but what what is used to treat addiction isn't itself addictive or problematic at all anyway. So I don't I wouldn't think it all. It, you know, it's it's a it's it's a medication that like any medication for any problem needs to be managed, you know, properly and and expertly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I'm with you. I mean, uh, um, all of the above, all of the above works. So uh, another question I had for you, I was wondering if you, um, just in your practice, do you run across patients who have substance abuse issues? And do, do you think that this, your own personal experience kind of helps you in guiding them if you, if you do have these patients? Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, 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 un, unquestionably, um, uh, my, my perspective has changed. And not only with substance issues, but, you know, as someone with a dual diagnosis, um, yeah. you know, depression and uh, substance, that my, my perspective has completely changed. And I have uh, spoken privately to patients who are going for inpatient treatment and said, you can do this. I don't tell my story, but I say I have some experience with this, and I I, I, I speak in general terms, and I think that has been 
helpful for for some of them. I hope it has been. And, you know, I, I read and I think that this is probably true. In fact, I actually I got this from Dr. Ray Baker that in Canada, there's very little education given a medical school about addiction and addiction treatment. Absolutely. Very. I mean, I, I can just speak for myself and say, basically, you hear that you've, you know, this is a while ago, you heard the terms methadone. Um, mm. And, uh, and uh, in residency, you would, uh, you would, uh, we would do acute detox for alcohol. Um, but that you kind of learn on the fly. Um, but the, and uh, when I was at the university, I, I taught medical school. Um, and uh, as far as I know, there was very little of the curriculum devoted to that. So it's good that you have that, that you're able to use your experience in a positive way anyway. So we have, we're coming up on an, on an hour here pretty soon. So um, I think we can wind things down. I do appreciate you, you uh, coming on the podcast to talk about your experience, Rich. Um, it was really interesting. And, uh, you know, it's a lot, a, lot, a lot to think about. And in particular, what you said about how, phys- how, how healthcare workers are seen as heroes and lifted up. It just reminds me of how um, veterans um, felt coming back from the Iraq war and being thanked for their service and, and, and just having that, I don't know, that, that feeling of oh, somehow being different and, and not having the same experience as the rest of the population. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what healthcare workers are dealing with now. They're, they're on the front lines dealing with a, a huge problem. I mean, we're all in this together. We're all in, in our isolation and so forth, but you know, I don't have COVID patients breathing on me every day. Yeah, and and I think same as you know, similar to the veterans, you don't you don't want to let people down. You mm-hmm. um, you feel um, you know admired and and respected, and um, again, a lot to live up to. And 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 it, admitting that you know you're having difficulties um, feels a little bit like letting people you know letting people down, letting your you know the people around you, your coworkers. Um, um, you know, letting them down. And then that is, that can be a very shameful experience. And we all know, we all know what shame begets. Right. And I, I I can kind of see, you know, on a much uh, lower scale, um, kind of like when you have been sober for a little bit, if you, you know, show uh, emotion or go through a tough time, sometimes it's hard to talk about it because, you know, you've, you've got a little bit of time and people with some sober time shouldn't be having these kinds of problems. So, So my last question for you, though, is, you know, for those of us in recovery, how can we support um, our healthcare workers during this, um, both in recovery and outside of recovery? You know, do you have any suggestions of things that um, that would be helpful for us so that we can um, be community and and support them in a way that's useful to them? Well, I I think I think you. Angela, you mentioned that you have some friends who are healthcare workers or people you know who are healthcare workers. Yeah. Um, you know, really, uh, you know, really checking in with them uh, as you can on a uh, on a, a, a deeper level than hey, you know, how's it going? You know, you know, really kind of you know let let them know that you care. Um, uh, let them know that. Uh, you know, empathy. I guess that's the thing is empathy. Um, that uh, essay I, I sent you guys, um, 
that she talked about, she finally spoke up and other people said, yeah, I'm having a tough time too. You know, and she was expecting scorn and shame and she got a lot of empathy reflected back. And um, I think just being open and, and listening, um, whether they're in recovery or not. Um, and you, you may, you know, you may hear some things that you may not want to hear, but, um, just being there and, 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 and listening, um, yeah, so like holding uh, is, space for them. So even if it's a tough thing to, to hear and they may be struggling with it, or it's just a tough thing in general, um, being willing to hold the space for them that they can talk about it and, and, uh, you won't fall apart. Um, Exactly. Exactly. Okay. One final question for you, Rich, that is coming from Johnny. Um, and I, and you may have already answered this, but he's just kind of curious what you think about naltrexone. Um, again, uh, uh, everything is on the table. Um, it's as far as I know for alcohol anyway, it's an off label use. Um, I believe don't quote me on that, <laughs> but, um, it, it, I have had, I have had, friends uh, in recovery who is, is really helped. So um, I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think again, s- supervised, you know, someone who's uh, supervised by someone who's an expert in its use. And it's, um, I think it can be a, a helpful tool. Um, I don't, I, I try not to, the same as in a meeting, you know, if it works for you, I'm all for it. Um, even if I don't agree with it or it's not for me, uh, whatever, whatever keeps you going. Well, Rich, thank you again. Thank you so much. So thank you. that's it. That's another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for our patience. Uh, I think that the Internet machine wasn't working so good for us today, but um, that's OK. We all had a good time. So one last thing, if thank you people for donating to AA Beyond Belief. That's been fantastic to see the extra contributions in uh, our Patreon page. I mean, the Patreon wasn't doing anything for a long time, and now we're getting a lot of these dollar contributions. And again, I just can't tell you how much that helps. So if anyone out there wants to do that, you know, just make little dollar, one dollar a month contributions, you can do that at patreon.com slash AA Beyond Belief. And that's something we really do appreciate. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Angela. Again, it's always great to have you uh, on this podcast with me. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. And thank you, Rich. And best of luck to you as we uh, somehow make it through these, uh, these difficult times ahead.